Welcome to the podcast, Prof. David Mifsud. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Nika. So let's just get right into the project that you're leading. No problems. So the name yes. itself, not exactly the catchiest of names. <laughs> well, we, we, we found out all sorts of problems with this project, actually, you know, even though we called it no problems because it's an acronym, you know, for probiotics, you know, and all this. However, yes. And even with this COVID thing, we, we also had to stop it also for some time because essentially um, the project involves many scientists going in different parts of the world to, to do the experimentation and then to get all this information together and analyze all the results together. But yes, it was a lot of problems and not no problems at all. <laughs> so no problems. It's a, it's an international collaboration. Am I right? Yes, 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 yes. It's an international collaboration, mainly between, between about eight institutions. Most of them are based in Europe, but one institution is also based in South America. We have selected South America so that during our winter, we can do experimentation there, which is their summertime there, so that the experiment can be ongoing. Oh, that's excellent. That's a fantastic idea. So in your article, you mention uh, probiotics. Um, could you tell us what probiotics are exactly and why they are so important? Yeah. So practically, people, w what we are doing with this Mercury project, we, we, we know that out there, you know, throughout the world, population of bees are declining and uh, we started to look why they are on the decline and one of the most important factors that are contributing to this decline in honeybee populations is that we beekeepers you know the people we are always greedy to our bees um, we want that our bees if possible instead of producing 20 kilos of honey a year they produce 40 or 50 kilos of honey a year you know so we are doing everything to stress them, you know? And when you have an organism which is stressed throughout life because we want to make business out of it, then this organism is not happy. And if the organism is not happy, the organism is prone to secondary infections and to diseases. And we have found that because of all this stress that we cause on honeybees, you know, the microflora, the, the gut microbiota, is so much diminished. This occurs in all living organisms, you know. Even when you take antibiotics, you will destroy all the beneficial microbiota that you have inside your system. And in order to build this up again, you need months, if not years, you know. So what we have done uh, with this project is that we are trying to find those microorganisms which are beneficial and which are found in the guts of bees, you know, of honeybees. We have been going around in many countries of Europe, you know, to find wild bees, to find bees which are not treated with any chemicals, to find bees which are in the wild, you know. And we have tried to extract those uh, microorganisms which are beneficial. And we are trying to combine these organisms with plant extracts 
in order to make to, to produce a formulation which can be used for bees. So it's it's like our the probiotics that we take. You know, you can find these probiotics in, in supermarkets. And we are trying to develop instead of a probiotic for, for humans, we're trying to for the first time trying to invent a probiotic for bees so that the bees will get again healthier and and they will survive much better. Are we doing something to reduce the stress that bees are facing as well? Because that seems to be a significant problem as well, if I understood you correctly. We are, we are. But this is the subject of, I would say, good agricultural practice when it comes to beekeeping. For example, beekeepers need to know that once honeybees, you know, after summertime, they have loads of honey um, that they have produced, you know, from wild plants. They cannot simply go there and take all these honey reserves so that they sell it, you know. So good agricultural practice would mean that, listen, if the bees produced 40 kilos of honey, you know, from the wild flora, take only half of it and the other half, leave it there for the colony itself. Because in winter time, if you're going to take all the honey that they managed to harvest and you supplement it, instead of the honey that they produced, you give them sugar and water, this has no comparison with what they have harvested, you know. For them, honey is not just a sugary product, you know, it's like a pharmaceutical combination of things, you know. They have produced all this honey from different floral sources. There is also propolis added to everything, you know. So we cannot, instead of taking all the honey that they produced, give them sugar and water, you know. This is a big stress for the bees. So this comes in with good agricultural practice, I would say. And we are trying to educate uh, our beekeepers out there, you know, here at university, we also do a course every year, you know, it's a 28-hour course, and every year we have more than 20 students attending this, this course, you know. So little by little, yes, through education, we will arrive somewhere. Well, is, is it true that any honeybee can become a queen? So, this is complicated. In order to produce a queen, the materia prima that is needed is a first day or a second day larva. Okay. And the bees will provide ample amounts of food to this larva. They will create a queen cell, which is much larger than a normal cell in which a normal bee develops. And what happens is that practically this larva is floating all the time, 24 on 7, in a very nutritious food, you know, which is known as royal jelly. And because this larva is all the time embedded in food, it will get larger than a normal honeybee. Therefore, all the ovaries will be completely developed. And because of this, it will become, it is destined to become a bee. Whereas all the other larvae, which are not destined to become a queen, will only be given food at regular intervals. So this is the big difference. Genetically, they are the same. Yes, they are the same. So basically, if the larvae is fed constantly on, like with royal jelly, then eventually it becomes a queen. Yes, exactly. Obviously, they will only start producing these queen cells, either if the queen died or if the queen is a weak queen, they want to remove it. So this is called... A coup d'etat? <laughs> no, no. Um, so, you know, there are various reasons why honeybees will start to produce queen cells, you know? It is, it yes, is so yes, interesting. Yes, yes, yes. 
Yes, um, it's so, so true. Should we also start eating copious amounts of royal jelly to become queens ourselves? No, no, no. It doesn't work on humans. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> However, royal jelly is a very important source of food. You know, I know many countries that produce it and sell it commercially. So, so there, there is an industry there as well, you know, yeah. and people are aware of the health benefits of this royal jelly. Mela, let's get a bit more local uh, with the honeybee yeah. conversation. So Malta is yes. home to the western bee, um, Apis mellifera, but more specifically, there's a recognized subspecies, Apis yes. mellifera rutneri, otherwise known yes. as the Maltese honeybee. Yes. Can you talk about your research on the local populations and what makes our Maltese bee so special? Okay, so until, I would say that until... Uh, Eight years ago, this concept of uh, a subspecies um, didn't really... Yeah, I, I, I was always very skeptical about these subspecies. And I always considered our honeybee as the same as the European one. But, you know, doing a lot of research and collaborating with many experts in this field, I convinced myself that what we have over here is actually very different from what we have, what's out there, you know, in Europe. Our honeybee is of a much darker color, mm -hmm. and there are a number of physiological things which makes it so different from the normal European honeybee, you know. And this is exactly what we have been doing in these last, uh, I would say, four to five years. Um, we have been checking. It's, uh, it's genetic material, comparing its DNA, and yes, it is different. And I have to tell you also that we're doing also another research, completely different, and we are also finding out that even the microflora of our bees is different from bees in, in, in Europe. So everything uh, is, is giving us all this information, is pointing out that what we have here is really, really endemic and unique. And we should do everything in order to conserve it. Because one of the biggest problems that we have is that beekeepers, unfortunately, continue to bring um, queen bees, you know, mated queen bees from abroad, this Apis mellifera ligustica, because they think that it is a better subspecies. And this is all not true. Sorry? David, to clarify, you're referring to the subspecies from Sicily, correct? From, from Italy. I mean, we have done experiments with the subspecies that occurs in Italy and with our subspecies, we have done almost a two-year experiment. It is very clear that the Maltese subspecies is so suited to the environment here in Malta and it's much more robust for our environment, you know that. And we're going to publish this, hopefully, in a very nice research paper next year. So it will all be available for the general public out there so that they can actually see the big differences that there are. Well, we look forward to, to reading that research. Um, on, a, on a slightly different note, uh, is it true that honeybees dance to communicate? Yes, of course, of course. There are two different types of dances that the bees do. One of the dances will only indicate the bees, so, so the forager, once the forager goes out and finds a source of food which is very close to the hive, what will happen is that the forager will go back to the hive and it will indicate to the other foragers via this simple dance that, listen, nearby there is a source of food. And they will go for it and take it. The more 
complicated dance, the wagtail dance. This is much more complicated. In fact, um, in the 1950s, one scientist got uh, the Nobel Prize for it um, because in this dance, the foragers are indicating first and foremost the direction where the food source is and also how far the foragers need to go in that direction. So it's a very complicated dance, you know? And it's a very detailed uh, It provides a lot of information. Yes, yes, it provides a lot of information. And also it compensates for the movement of the earth with respect to the sun. So it is extremely complicated, yes. But the bees understand it immediately and they go immediately to that particular spot that the other foragers have indicated. So this this could be, for example, that one forager found food which is two kilometers away and which is in the southwest direction. And the bees will go there without any problems. Uh, Maybe we could also point out that we're talking specifically about females. Just want to put in that female power tidbit. (laughs) So wait, males can't, male bees can't dance? Is that what we're saying? No, 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 no. Male bees, um, they are known as drones. They are only present um, in the colony here in Malta twice a year. So you will only find them at the end of February, March and April, maybe up to May. And then you will find them again at the end of summertime, you know. And their only purpose is really so that if there are any virgin queens around, they will go and reproduce with them. That's all. You know, they have no other function as such. Literally, all they have to do is just go. And if there is an available queen, they, you know, they have a nice little dance with her in a different way. Yes, in a very different way. Because (laughs) at the end end of this, what you call dance, they, they will drop dead, you know. What, so after, so they just do it once and they die. Yes, my dear. Oh, that's 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 all they're needed for. There's no other purpose. <laughs> that's a bit sad. Honestly. <laughs> it's a bit sad. It's, there's a very nice documentary film. It was done some seven years ago by Imhoff, and this is called More More Than Honey. And okay. uh, in in this in this documentary, you can actually see the queen, a virgin queen in the air, being. Uh, Fecunded by by the drones, you know, it's a very, very nice video. Wow, fantastic. I, I, I recommend it to everyone. It's a two-hour documentary by Markus Imhoff, and it's so, so nice. So I'd like to bring it back again to the local context. So first, I'm wondering, why is it that Maltese beekeepers are bringing in the Italian subspecies um, for the queen bees? And what threats are local beekeepers being faced with primarily here? Mm. So there is this tendency in Ica that this Italian bee, Apis mellifera ligustica, it's a yellow bee, you know. Um, one characteristic that this bee possesses is that it is a very docile bee, all right? This is what you find in books, you know. Some beekeepers prefer to use this one because they can play around with the colony. It's very docile, you know. There is no stinging when you open the colony. And because there is this uh, skepticism about it, you know, some people do try to get it. However, we found there is also something something else, which I have to say. The Dimaltese honeybee, this Apis mellifera ligustica, there is some tendency that some colonies tend to be slightly aggressive. But this is not true, because when we are doing rearing experiments, when we are doing breeding experiments, we try to select those colonies which are not aggressive. And nowadays, in fact, there there is an NGO 
which is actually working with the breeders. There is also a number of breeders who are literally producing our local honeybee in a non-aggressive form, you know. I myself, I'm a beekeeper, you know, and all my bees are of the apis mellifera rotneri type. And whenever I take people to see my colonies, they are never aggressive. They never attack, you know. So I'm, I would say that, again, this is all a question of trying to educate our beekeepers, you know. Our beekeepers, especially those who are slightly advanced in age, they have this tendency to say our bee is aggressive. But this is absolutely not true. And what was your second question, Nika? Because um, Actually, I'll get back to that in a second because another question has come to mind. I find it very interesting that there are docile species because doesn't that go against their evolution? Aren't they no. supposed to be a bit aggressive to protect their colonies? No, no, not really, Nika. I mean, they are protective, you know, and they know how to protect. And actually, there are, there are bees inside the colony which are known as guard bees, as you know better than me. But, you know, it's not a question of attacking, you know. Protecting is different from attacking, you know. So if you if you open a colony and all the bees will start trying to attack you, then there is definitely something wrong, you know. This is an aggressive behavior. But otherwise, this behavior shouldn't be there, no. Because they are only guarding, you know. So, for example, here in Malta, we have this Asian hornet, which are doing a lot of damage to our bees. And these, these Asian hornets will go to the entrance of the bee and they will try to get a bee in order to eat its muscles, you know. So what is happening there is that all the other bees at the entrance, they are trying to protect. So they are not letting this big Vespa, this big wasp, to attack the colony, you know. So it's, it's more of a protective nature rather than defensive, rather than attacking. It sounds very savage that these wasps, they, they eat the muscles of, of the guard bees. They are these wasps, you know, these Asian hornets. Literally, they want to eat meat, you know, they want to eat protein, you know. So what they do, it's crazy, you know, what they do, once they grab a bee, practically they remove the wings, you know, they remove the abdomen, they remove the head, and they will only take the muscles, you know, the muscles with which, which are used um, in flight. It's crazy. You will see this done in less than 20 seconds. That's brutal. But also a group of of honeybees, because the wasp is so much bigger, and a group of honeybees, they can actually uh, sometimes win the fight. Yes, we have have actually done videos also, um, giving them these Vespa Orientalis, you know, these Asian hornets, and you can see that a cluster of bees, some 40, 50 individuals, will immediately ball it, you know, they will go around it, and they will kill it. So amazing. Sounds a bit like WWB. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, I just can, I'm also curious to know uh, when you say that there's bees that act as guards you said that there's a difference between protecting and attacking so they yes. have stingers they're not going to use them unless they absolutely have to but exactly. then what strategy do they use to protect? There are various strategies that bees use to protect their colony Nika. for example the entrance of their hive is they use propolis it's like a cementing um, material so that the entrance of their hive is reduced to a minimum when for example bees go inside a tree or inside a, a, a structure you know in order to build their colony there they will always try to reduce the size the entrance from where they can go on and go out you know they reduce it to a minimum once this 
entrances is reduced to a minimum, then they are protecting all the colony inside that area because very few organisms can enter within that small space. So they use various strategies, you know, to protect themselves from different organisms. Um, so let me, um, in the article, it's mentioned the gut parasite, Nosema chernai, I probably butchered that name. Nosema, yes, Nosema. Nosema. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about the this parasite? So here we are entering into, into a very subtle subject, I would say. So let's say, once we are keeping bees, you know, and we are keeping bees in large quantities and very often on a small area, we are for sure destined that whatever we are trying to to rear in this way is destined to get diseases. So there are many diseases that can occur in honeybees, and one of them is this parasite, nosema. It occurs in the gut. However, even though I wouldn't say that this nosema is enemy number one in honeybee populations. We are making experiments so that we see the stressors when when we have this parasite inside the bee. But I would say that a more important parasite in bees is a type of, let's call it external parasite, a mite like a tick that sucks the blood of bees, you know. And this is known as, uh, scientific name is Varroa, Varroa destructor. And this species is... Um, native to Southeast Asia. It was accidentally introduced all over the world, practically nowadays. In Malta, it was introduced in the early 1990s. And this parasite, I would say, is enemy number one of bees all over the world. And this is why also people, beekeepers, um, give chemicals in their in bee colonies in order to reduce the amount of this of this parasite you know having said this we have also been doing experimentation we have had colonies of bees of the maltese honeybee where there was absolutely no treatment no chemical treatment whatsoever against this uh, varroa mite the, the results are amazing you know because these colonies still manage to survive and what we are doing right now is that we are trying to and reveal how this is done, you know, by the bees themselves, how they manage to control and to reduce the Varroa population to a minimum in order for the colony not to collapse. So the the Varroa, um, um, uh, it's distinct from Nosema, right? Yes, yes, Nosema is a very, it's, it's practically an internal parasite, which is microscopic, Whereas Varroa, you can actually see it with your naked eye. Oh, I see. All right. Okay. And, uh, yes. The yes. first one is a fungus, correct? In the article, uh, Nosema is, Dr. Alberoni says that Nosema is a fungus but behaves like a virus. Yes, uh, it's, like, it's exactly like that. Yes, it's, it's a fungal parasite, you know. In fact, what we, what, what we are checking when we do experimentation are the spores, you know. So we get we get the guts out, you know, out of the honeybee, and then there is a procedure, and then what we count are these spores of nosema, you know. Okay, um, I have a slightly less technical question. Can I ask how did you get into bees? <laughs> uh, so this is a long story. So when I was doing my PhD in Switzerland, so I did a PhD in entomology, and I came back to Malta 
working with the government. The government at that time, he wanted me not only to take care of the diagnostic labs, you know, of plant health, but at that time, the government also wanted me to take over the apiculture section as well. And I was all the time refusing because I never liked bees, you know. I, <laughs> this was not my subject. Oh, and I never wanted to go story. into this subject. Uh, but, you know, fighting and fighting and fighting, this was not really a good deal for me because I'm not a good fighter. So then I decided to take over also the apiculture section within the Ministry of Agriculture at that time. And... Uh, you know, in order to learn a subject, people, you just have to try to keep bees yourself, you know. Mm -hmm. If I was trying to keep bees of the government, you will learn nothing, you know. Because if a colony dies, it's not your colony, you know. Uh, you haven't invested, invested in it. anything in it, you know. So that's what ex exactly that this is how I started my beekeeping activity. Trying to learn from my own mistakes. So you were reluctant to, to engage with bees in the beginning, right? Oh, yes. For a whole year, I was trying to fight everyone at the ministry not to take this action, you know? Wow. Well, what a love story. <laughs> so what you were saying about the Varroa is that you've been seeing some positive results in terms of how the uh, Maltese honeybee um, is still able to maintain healthy populations, even if there's yes. an infection. That's very promising. Yes, this is very promising research. Um, it's not only done here in Malta, you know, we're doing it in collaboration with, with scientists from um, Germany mainly, you know, because they have a lot of experience in this. Um, I will have a master's student working entirely on this next year. So, yes, I mean, things are little by little, you know, we're getting there. We have limited resources in Malta, but if there is passion and if there is a way forward by people to do this research work, then we do it, and we do it as the foreigners do it. You know, we do it with, with all the possible investment that we can. Yeah, um, and I love hearing about these fruitful collaborations because certainly Malta has a history of being, at least in the research realm, being a bit territorial. So you are quite going against the grain and really opening up. Yes, that, that's very important, Nick. I mean, if, if, I, if I was director of university, I would tell all the students they have to go out there, they have to go in foreign institutions for at least one year so that they open a bit their minds so that they can get collaborations here in Malta, we are too small, you know. We have some people that they think that they know the world, you know, that they know everything in their particular subject. But this is not true. The more you know, the more you learn that you know nothing, you know. That's true. And there are so many things that we still know nothing about them. For me, this is the way forward, you know. If we don't collaborate with everyone, then we, we can never find suitable solutions. And it's not just in academia, I would say. I would say even in in people's personal lives, I think interacting with different cultures, I think it really helps us to, to broaden our perspectives. Yes, yes. So, so much. So, so much. I mean, yesterday 
I was looking at a video clip of a 90-year-old man who traveled, I would say, 61 countries in his life. And you can talk with this guy. He's 90 years old. And you can see that in every single word that he's saying, there is so much culture from all over the world. So he is passionate. Whenever he's talking, you can stay there listening to him for hours, even if he is 90 years old. Because, you know, all, all these different cultures, all these different places... They have been embedded uh, as part and parcel of, of his life. And he wants to give this to people. And people need to be so grateful, you know, when they meet people like him. Because it's people like him that change a lot the perspective of how we look at the world today. Uh, beautiful. Uh, I agree with you. And it's, and it's amazing that we have people like that. Yes, but le yes. but David, I think that also um, you definitely need to give yourself a pat on the back because you are part of a small group of people who are making substantial changes with this kind of ethos. And maybe we can end with a note about uh, the wonderful local products that you produce, the honey and the olive oil, the wine that you make. I don't know how you managed to find the time on top of all these amazing collaborations and all this interesting research. Can, can we still look forward to, to your honey and your wine this year, despite Corona? I don't know. I don't think that we are organizing anything, you know, because of the current uh, health. Uh, I, don't, I don't know, really. I don't think that we will be organizing big events because we have to respect um, health authorities. And let's just hope that next year, yes, we will get back on track yes. and we will let people at university and from outside university enjoy all these natural products and all, all the possibilities that, that we can produce and we, and we can do, you know? Well, fingers crossed for next year then. Uh, thank you, Professor Mifsud, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. We wish you the best of luck and the speedy recovery.